Hello and welcome to this week's Leap of Faith. Television documentary director Pat Shine and his cousin entertainer and singer Brendan Shine share a family story that's over 100 years old. I've been singing songs and collecting stories about Irish emigrants all my life. But there's a story in my own family of the missionary priest, Father James Coyle. All I know, or think I know from family folklore, is that he went to America and he was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in Birmingham, Alabama. But why? Who was he? And what was he even doing there? More of that story shortly. And it's Nauru's, the first day of the Baha'i calendar year. We'll hear from Sarah Sabor Chadwick about her faith and how it sustained her and her community over the past 12 months of the pandemic. And earlier this evening, Pope Francis officially recognised Knock Shrine as an international Marian and Eucharistic shrine. Last year, the Pontiff declared 2021 as the Year of St Joseph. Well, earlier this evening, the Pope delivered a message during a Mass at Knock, which was concelebrated by Archbishop of Tume Michael Neary and parish priest Father Richard Gibbons. But first, in a week where the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Vatican addressed the blessing of same-sex unions and their statement that the Church cannot bless a sin, resulted in hurt for many. In Germany, nearly 1,000 pastoral ministers as well as other Catholics have signed a letter in support of such blessings. Elsewhere in Germany, bishops and priests are raising objections to the ban at an increasing pace. Here in Ireland, the Association of Catholic Priests added that they felt the CDF document was contradictory, negative and condemnatory. Well, to discuss this more, I'm joined from his home this evening by Father Joe MacDonald, currently parish priest of Selbridge and Straffan Parish in County Kildare, and author of the book, Why the Irish Church Deserves to Die. Father MacDonald, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Concerning the statement that came from the CDF, which states God cannot bless a sin, that hurt a lot of people. I suppose, to be honest, Michael, my focus, and I, and I think this is not about, you know, a big, a big Ferrari or a big controversial, from a pastor's point of view, uh, is where I'm coming from. And I would have to say, when we think tonight of the people who are LGBTQ, not only them, but their parents, their grandparents. I was speaking to a grandmother today whom I met by accident. She's heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. And as she said to me, she says, I thought it would be a great way. She says, I thought a blessing. She said, wouldn't have harmed anybody. And, you know, you're keeping the sanctity of marriage safe and all that and so on. So I think, look, it's not for the first time. It, it wouldn't be the first time, Michael, we have had a gap between doctrine and pastoral uh, context and so on. But um, I'm disappointed and I'm saddened. There'd be a certain amount of anger in me about it, but it's, it's, um, I'm very conscious you can have anger and not get anywhere with it. The anger would more be, I think, missed opportunity. I think language. I, I think... And I suppose if I'm honest about it, I'm asking myself, where's Jesus in this? Like, where is, because one of the things that I would see in, as a pattern in the life of Jesus is a very clear stating of an ideal. That, that is fine. But my goodness, you know, the bridge, I think, between the doctrine and the pastoral context is compassion. And I don't see much of it. Father MacDonald, throughout the day, we've been hearing of priests in Germany and indeed here in Ireland who would rebel against the Vatican advice. Where do you stand on this? I suppose, Michael, 
I would be concerned about that. Now, I'm not doubting the integrity of the guys at all, and I have huge respect for it, but I really feel we want to be careful about fragmentation. I don't think that's what the faith community needs. Um, from my own personal perspective, I find this issue very troubling, um, but I would not be in, you know, if you ask me a direct question, I hear guys being asked, "Will you? would you bless um, a couple of the same, of same-sex couple? My difficulty is the CBF has issued this statement, and for me to go against that, I certainly would need to spend a little bit of time in prayer and reflection. I certainly wouldn't do it immediately. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it at all, but I would need time genuinely to pray about this substantially to reflect upon it because I think what we're doing then is you know it's a massive step Michael to to stand against what the church is saying at the moment. If we go back to what the CDF would have done when they got this question from the German bishops they would have looked at the law and the rules of the church and said that any form of union that's outside of marriage and indeed any sexual activity outside of marriage is the sin they were talking about we spoke on the program about your book, Why the Irish Church Deserves to Die. And one of the concepts in that book was the church losing and indeed affecting its moral authority. Has this statement affected that moral authority for you at a local level? I'm absolutely convinced of it. You know, in my, my life as a pastor, the amount of times, and I don't think people get this, and with respect to people that work in, in, in the CDF and so on, do they get the impact of this on people now, obviously, there's people, Michael, will not be affected by it. But but I'm talking about people of faith, and and it's broader than Catholicism. It's across the board. People of faith are looking for some sense. And you see, this is this is why this idea of the church deserving to die. It's probably a little bit controversial. It's not meant to be that way. It got people's attention, to be fair. The title. Yeah, but yeah. but you see, Michael, when you explore it, okay, people and reacted to the title, and that's fine. When you get to the core of this, what, what am I talking about? I'm saying, isn't it reasonable that when people come to church, that they have some sense of acceptance, some sense of welcome, some sense of belonging, and that they're able to find a place within the church. They're able to find a place where they can live and breathe and, and develop and grow. And I think that's the big problem with this. And that's, you know, this idea of the church deserving to die, it wouldn't, I wouldn't get who bogged down in that language. What I'm really saying is, I think we are dying. I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot. I think there's there's a crisis across the board in terms of, of institutional or organized religion. And like what I would be saying to people, lots of people have contacted me since the, since the statement came out. And what I've been trying to say, but it's very difficult for them to hear this in the context off the statement on the language, I've been trying to say, look, please don't go, please don't leave. And those who have left, and I'm being cheeky enough to say, please come back. Because I think the people that we're talking about who are hurt and wounded and so on, I can understand them walking away. I, I really get that. What I would be saying, oh, please stay and claim back your church. And, and you know, put, take your position and say, I'm here, I am, I am a young gay man, or I'm here, I'm, I'm in a same-sex union or whatever, and I, I'm a person of faith. 
I believe in God. I believe I believe in in the whole, if you like, good news or kingdom or whatever way you want to put that. And I am not going to be turned away or I am not going to be sidelined by doctrine. And we have Pope Francis now talking about the concept of a civil union between two people of the same sex as being acceptable, but it won't be marriage. Yeah, you see, I found that fascinating. I was When I was reading the statement, I was asking myself, where's Francis in this? I was curious, you know, how does that? And I think that's a very interesting question. But I think Francis is up against it in a whole range of areas. I mean, we're talking specifically about tonight about civil union, but if you were to talk about the role of women, for example, if you were to talk about laity, even what Paul Dempsey was talking to you about recently in terms of synod and so on. And I noticed at the end of the statement, Michael, it's very interesting, Pope Francis was informed. So I said, okay, he was informed. Then we got the next bit, and he gave assent to the publication. I think it's very interesting because I'd love to be talking to him. I'd love to say, you said famously, who are you to judge? You know, he's given us certain hope. You know, I think he's a fantastic pontiff in many ways. But I do wonder to what degree he is bound again by the bureaucracy. This is an old story, of course. And you just wonder about it. Like when I saw the statement, I said, my goodness. Now, they had say they were asked the question. They, you know, they had to respond to the question from the German Episcopal Conference and so on. But I still... I still just wonder about where is the, the wonderful, you know, fresh leadership that Francis has been given. Father Thanks, Joe McDonald, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Next this evening, to the intriguing story of an Irish priest, Father James Coyle, a native of Drum in County Roscommon, who was shot on the porch of his presbytery 100 years ago this year in Birmingham, Alabama, by a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Father Coyle is the granduncle of entertainer and singer Brendan Shine and his cousin television documentary director Pat Shine, who both join me from their homes in Drum in Roscommon and Bray County Wicklow tonight. Brendan, when was the first time you heard the story of Father James Coyle? Well, of course, we knew it as children because there was a picture of him in, in the front room in the parlour of our house and all we knew was that he was a brother of my granny and we heard that he was shot in, in America, you know, and that to a child, I suppose... Uh, didn't, didn't really register, but um, I always was, was very, very curious about this man because he looked so stern looking on this pit. And uh, sometimes when we'd be bold years ago, we'd be put into the into the bold step in the sitting room. And this man was always, he had these peering eyes and he always seemed to be looking at you no matter where you were. And we were kind of really afraid of him. So, you know, when I grew up then, we kind of started to find out a little bit more. And then my cousin Pat came on to me and uh, we, 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 we started taking the story and the whole endeavour from there. Uh, we'll talk to you, Patton, about that in a second. But I want to find a little bit more about this man, James Coyle. He was born in Drum in County Roscommon, where you are this evening. That's right, in my home place. Yeah, he, he, I was born in, in Drum and uh, he, he was on about, about a mile from where, where his sister, of course, married my grandfather. And they moved over to a place called Kilty. That's where I come from, which would be about a mile and a half as the crow flies across from where he comes from. But we're all within the parish of Drum, yeah. And Pat, you're with us as well this evening. Uh, the director of the documentary that was made on the story of Father James Coyle, uh, which in, in itself, uh, Across in Alabama, fascinating title. Uh, what was your introduction to the man? Well, I think it was probably when I was about 10 in the late 60s. Uh, there would have been a lot of Ku Klux Klan 
mentions on TV, movies or whatever. And my father, uh, Peter, said, oh, they're the boys who killed my uncle. And I thought, that can't be right. You know, how could an uncle of ours or my father's be killed by the Ku Klux Klan? So basically, Father Coyle was originally in Mobile. And in 1904, he was made dean of the cathedral in Birmingham. Birmingham at the time was known as the Magic City because it was growing so fast. And obviously the growth was driven by migration from Europe and a huge number of those migrants were from uh, predominantly Catholic countries, Poland, Italy, Ireland, obviously. And we know in 1914, 1915, uh, there was a very strong upsurge in anti-Catholic feeling partly driven by World War One and whether America would enter into it or not, but also um, the film The Birth of a Nation. That gave rise to the Ku Klux Klan being reborn as essentially not as a, a race movement, but as an anti-Catholic movement. Brendan, before we continue further with the actual story of, of the, the death of Father James Coyle, during the documentary, you had an opportunity to visit the rectory and there you found 17 volumes uh, of the priest's notes and some of his sermons. Uh, let's hear a clip of, of, of that discovery. I am still trying to understand everything I've learned here in Birmingham. In the rectory, which was Father Coyle's home, 17 volumes of his pulpit notes have been discovered one for each year of his time here. The final entry tells me a lot about the man. The last uh, entry for Father Coyle would have been August the 7th, 1921. And the very last thing he spoke about, the last announcement he made was about a collection for the orphans here in town. He was very close to that cause. He says, uh, generosity in this cause, God repays many times over. Give, give till it hurts then and only then is their sacrifice. And that was the last thing that Father Cole wrote. Give, give until it hurts. And then only then is their sacrifice. So Brendan, there we heard you talking about the discovery of the man's writings himself. What was the impression it left with you? Well, it was, it was enormous. Like, you know, the first night we walked into Birmingham and Alabama, we went down to a place where we were going to record a little session, which we did on the documentary. And we walked into the pub and uh, the man, the barman says, uh, what are you doing here? And we said we were doing a documentary on an Irish priest. And he said, is that Father Coyle? So the people knew all about it there. Uh, the amount of work this man done was enormous. And if you come to, that was back in 1990. Uh, and as Pat said, this man was under severe pressure. You know, a lot of anti-Catholicism in the area where he was. Uh, and Pat, when you uh, are expanding on the story a little bit more, let's bring in one more character, and that's Eeyore Stevenson. Who was he? Edwin Stevenson, funnily enough, he started off as a, a barber and uh, he literally shot himself in the foot. <laughs> he could no longer uh, take the standing all day long. So he set himself up as a Methodist minister. And so he, he would have known the priests, he would have known Father Coyle and had very strong anti-Catholic um, feelings. He attended a lot of meetings and he, he was known to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
he had a daughter called Ruth, who, when she was about 10 or 11, um, they hired a man to come and uh, do some decoration in their house. And this man was Puerto Rican. His name was Pedro, Pedro Guzman. And Pedro was a Catholic. And so he started, he told her, you know, certain things about what it was to be a Catholic and so on. And then he went away and they, they had no contact. But when she turned 19, Ruth and Pedro were back in contact with each other and they decided they wanted to get married. Um, now, rather than go to the courthouse where her father was well known in the center of Birmingham, they telephoned back to St. Paul's and they spoke to Father Coyle's sister, Marcella, and asked if they could come to get married. So Father Coyle's sister rang the place where she knew Father Coyle was visiting and explained to her that Ruth Stevenson and Pedro Guzman wanted to get married. Now, it's said that Father Coyle, when he finished that phone call, turned to the priest that he was visiting and said, uh, it seems that I'm marrying Mr. Stevenson's daughter. He'll probably shoot me for that. And, well, as we, we find out, he certainly did. Uh, the marriage took place around four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a Thursday, the 11th of August. And there needed to be witnesses. And Father Coyle asked his sister Marcella and a young curate called Father Brady uh, to be the witnesses. But he asked them to stay in the sacristy to witness the wedding from a distance because he knew there was danger. He knew there was um, that this was certainly going to lead to some trouble. And uh, so the wedding took place and later on that evening, Father Coyle was sitting on the porch, as he did every evening in August, in the shade, uh, reading his breviary. And about six o'clock, uh, Edwin Stevenson arrived very uh, upset because he had found out that the marriage had taken place. Somebody in the courthouse had told him. And he uh, walked straight up to Father Coyle took out a gun and shot him three times and then walked away down the porch and went to the police station, handed himself in and said, I've done a terrible thing. I've killed the priest. And we'll talk about the yeah. trial in a moment. But Brendan, you were you've been on that porch. You've stood in front of the house. Tell me about that that moment. Well, you know, as, as, as coming from the very, very home place where, 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 he, where he was born and reared and, you know, I, I, I was baptised in the same church and, as he was and, you know, as being a, a blood relation like Pat, when I walked onto the, that sacred ground, the ground where, where we now know that, that, he, that this man was just shot down in, in cold blood for, for doing, his, doing his duties rather, like he wasn't doing anyone a favour, he was a priest and they probably were bound. To, to marry people and that was part of his, his duty and to think that um, by doing that that he was shot uh, you know without any question and like he probably as Pat said he probably knew that this was going to happen but for me you know I felt a very very chill right through my body you know and uh, it was one of those moments one of the moments of the whole visit there that I felt that I was somewhere along the line I was 
I felt it was very, very close to, to, to this man and that we were, getting, we were getting to the bottom of this awful, awful story. Reverend Stevenson came in, walked up on the porch, went to Father without any words, fired three shots. And Marcella rushed out of the house, found him lying in a pool of blood, right? Approximately this spot. And Pat, the trial in itself is something that it's quite shocking for people to hear. We had Stevenson handing himself into the police. And then what was the outcome of the trial? Well, the, the period between the shooting and the trial, Stevenson actually became something of a hero. And the Ku Klux Klan got behind his defence and they ran statewide like they had fairs to raise money uh, in, in villages and towns all over Alabama for his defence. So the trial was a huge story, actually. There was like the New York Times covered it. Uh, there were hundreds of newspapers from all over the United States covering the trial. And uh, within, I think the jury were out for about two hours and they came back with a verdict of not guilty. Well, you know, listen to all that there. It, 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 you know, a hundred years on, the man did die for his faith and, and uh, you know, something should be done in, in, in respect of that. And that's kind of the purpose that we all would be after, you know. Would you be suggesting, what, beatification or sainthood? Well, blessed even, you know, he, he definitely needs to be recognised. I don't think there is any recognition. And there's probably, as I, I wouldn't be a theologian under that, there's, there's, there's probably ways of doing that. But, you know, he is, he, it's very, very evident from, from the story here that, that the man uh, was a very upstanding Catholic doing his duty and he was shot down in, you know, in, in, in cold blood. You know, something should be, he, he deserves a little bit more recognition than we just do in the documentary, you know. Pat Shine and Brendan Shine, thank you for telling us the fascinating story of Father James Coyle on the programme tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. A great pleasure and thank you for having us. Finally, tomorrow is the spring equinox in the Northern Hemisphere. As the sun passes the equator from the south, it heralds spring for us all. For members of the Baha'i faith, it also starts their new year. Well, joining us now from her home in Waterford is Sarah Sabor Chadwick. Sarah, welcome to The Leap of Faith and a Happy New Year to you. Now, you might share with us why I'm giving you a Happy New Year greeting on the 19th of March. Thanks very much, Michael. I am a member of the Baha'i Faith and uh, today, this evening, as I suppose, marks the beginning of uh, one of our holy days, which is Baha'i New Year. Um, and it's 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 term that we often use to describe it is called no ruse, which is a translation for the word new day um, from from the from the Persian language. So it's um, it's that's the day we're celebrating uh, today. It's, it's it's it it coincides with the spring equinox in the in the northern hemisphere, and uh, it's I suppose a day of renewal and day of you know thinking ahead to 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 the year ahead and 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 thinking about our own calling in life I suppose as well as each one of us I'm sure gets to ponder on from time to time. <laughs>
And we'll explore a little bit more for people who might know a lot about the Baha'i faith, because I'm curious when you, know, you were born into the faith, but uh, for friends and neighbours who mightn't, what's their curiosity and, and what do they actually sometimes wonder or guess about being Baha'i? It's a good question. I mean, I suppose for many people have heard now of the Baha'i faith, um, but many, many have not. And, and often I think people want to know whether it's a, a, a different sect of Christianity or is it stemming? Is it another sect of Islam, for example? Um, like often how I explain that is, is that it's an independent world faith. You know, it, it began in the in the 19th, middle of the 19th century when Baha'u'llah, who was the founder, um, you know, made promoted a message of oneness, which was quite a revolutionary thing for that time, as it still applies now, and that humanity really was approaching a new stage in its development and its maturity when the unity of the human race is now possible. And not only is it possible, but it's kind of essential. <laughs> and does it have all of the other aspects that people would find in, a, in an organized faith or religion? Is there a temple? Is there a place of, of gathering? Uh, and is there a book that guides your, your teaching and your thinking? So yes, I mean there. Uh, in terms of the, in terms of a book, if I answer that part first, and um, Baha'u'llah revealed, you know, volumes actually of of writings that are are utilised. There's certainly some key books that are within uh, the Baha'i uh, library, if you like. Um, but but actually, there are over a hundred volumes of 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 text and and revelation, if you like, that Baha'u'llah gave to humanity uh, over a course of a 40 year kind of ministry in which during which he lived. We've been reminiscing with some people about the previous 12 months and the experience of the pandemic and COVID and how their faith and their community supported them. How has that been for you as a member of the Baha'i Faith in Ireland? Well, I've, I've, you know, it's interesting, you know, here we are a year on um, it's been it's been a, 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 an unexpected, unprecedented year, obviously, for everybody. Um, if you had told me this time last year that, you know, you would still be able to uh, express my Baha'i identity, express the principles of the Baha'i faith without meeting anybody, I would have told you that it's impossible. But, you know, it says something about human experience to try and adapt, really, doesn't it? Um, I think not just in my own personal experience, but also just generally humanity has had to adapt. But it's taken shape. A lot of stuff has taken shape and, and manifested online, on Zoom, um, which has you know, which was, took a while to get used to, but really we've kind of, I feel as a community really adjusted to it and, and found a way to, it's, it's been great in terms of preventing isolation or, you know, a sense of loneliness. I think I'm very grateful for the online forum, as unusual as it was at the beginning, to actually stay connected, not just with members of the Baha'i faith, but with my friends and my local community here in, in Waterford, where I live, um, and in, in terms of building, you know, community. And a final question, any New Year's resolutions then? <laughs> That's a good one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I really, yeah, I don't know. I'd love to have a, a quick answer for that. That would be uh, effective. But um, yeah, I'd like to do more exercise, certainly. Um, and I suppose maybe to conjoin it with what I've been saying is even considering my physical body, like, and, and, and getting some exercise, but also my spiritual, my spiritual body and, and actually trying to connect deeper with the with the with the um the teachings that Baha'u'llah has given us so maybe both of those things together is one thing a way I can look at I think it. a challenge for everybody whenever you celebrate your new year Sarah Sebert Chadwick thank you so much for joining us on the leap of faith tonight thanks so much Michael thank you
And that's our leap of faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarrod Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night. <laughs>